We're going to talk out of a passage of story. I'm going to use one story today out of a couple Gospels that is very familiar to us. And we're going to kind of navigate through that to get to a central truth that I believe in my heart that the Holy Spirit wants to illustrate and enlighten for us and illuminate us for. So if you'll turn to the book of Mark chapter 5, that's where we're going to start today. So this is the story, as many of us know and have heard many times, of the Gerasene demoniac. And we're going to work our way through the story, and we'll stop and kind of chat about some things as we go through. But uh, in particular, we're going to work our way towards kind of a center core of the story, just to express a point I feel like the Holy Spirit has for us. So we're going to start at the top, and this is going to be Mark 5, chapter 1. And we're going to cross-reference with the account in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 8. So if you want to put a finger in Luke 8, we're going to be flipping back and forth a little bit as we go. But I'm reading out the New American Standard today uh, for reference for the screen. All right, let's get started. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him, and the New American Standard says, no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Interesting that word anymore, because it implies there was a point when they were able to bind this man. That there was a point where... He had become somewhat unmanageable and needed to be restrained, and they had restrained him. But as we'll see in the verses to come, he developed the ability to break out of those restraints. And at this capacity, at this point, he could not be restrained anymore. And so he moved out of the city into the area of, well, the tombs or out into the mountains because he essentially couldn't be handled anymore within, within the city. So let's read on to verse 4. He says this, Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse 5, Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Now I think that's an interesting scripture because obviously we understand that this man was possessed by an evil spirit. Isn't it interesting that as soon as that overwhelming presence of the enemy was on his life, that he began to kind of self-inflict injury upon himself, that the attempt of the enemy was actually to kill this man. And as we'll get into a little bit later, the capacity of the human spirit to withhold that shows the true strength that we have inside, because despite its best efforts, as the Bible describes that there was a legion of demons which many people will say could represent anywhere from two to 6,000, but there were definitely thousands of demons present in this man, and despite their best attempts, they couldn't kill him. So it shows the strength of the human spirit. But it, I've always found it quite interesting that as we move in our life towards more and more selfishness, as we try to bring things into ourselves, as we try to do our best way to work out life by putting ourself as the first priority, that Life has a way, and I should say the enemy has a way with sin in our lives to take something that once started small and to grow it like a seed into something much larger. See, there's always an antithesis in the kingdom of God. There's always something opposite of that in the kingdom of darkness because the devil never actually creates anything on his own. He just tries to replicate or imitate the things of God. So in the same way that a seed grows in the kingdom of light, it also grows in the kingdom of darkness. So a sin advice in your life doesn't stay small, it grows because the flesh is never satisfied. And so in the nature of that, you'll see that that people, as they move into a place of self-deprecation, the level of it over time grows and grows and grows, if not dealt with or, or inhibited upon. And it ultimately leads people to extremes of isolation. So you'll see a man possessed by many devils moves out into the mountains because he was uncontainable within his society. He had reached past the capacity 
to be able to be restrained within the confines of normal society, and he was not acceptable anymore. So the best they could do is just to get him away and just stay away from the area he was in. Because the Bible clearly states in these gospels that anyone that came into that region would be beaten by this man, that, he was, that there was, you just could not come into an encounter with him. So let's keep looking at the scriptures. So verse 5, constantly night and day he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. So it's very interesting that despite the fact of the intensity of the demons upon this man's life, immediately when they saw the source of life, they submitted and yielded. Immediately they ran and fell at the feet of Jesus. They did not have the capacity to restrain that man from reaching the source of life. So no matter how fragmented that an individual is within their circumstances, their soul and spirit know who the source of life is. And so they respond accordingly. You'll find people coming into the doors of the church that don't know how they got there because they were seeking truth and something led them there. And they can't even tell you with coherent words why they ended up at the altar because their soul and spirit drew them to truth. So it doesn't matter how fragmented our lives get. The source of life knows how to unify those things and bring them all in alignment. So, Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Verse 7, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now, it's so interesting that obviously these demons yielded to the Spirit of God when they saw him. They knew who this was. Now, that man wasn't aware at that moment who this was, but the demons very much knew who was present there before them, and they responded and yielded to him. But it's interesting that they say, what business do we have with each other? And other translations talk about how it's, it's not the time yet. Of course, referring to the end of days, it's not time to be cast into the abyss. Because the interesting part is we read on in these scriptures, we'll see that they beg him not to send them out of the country. And Luke's gospel says, please don't send us into the abyss. The implication was, this is our region. This is where we're assigned to. We have no capacity to withstand your authority. So we're not even going to try, but we're begging you, let us hang around here. It's not our time to be sent into the depths, into the abyss. And I think that that's very interesting because we need to be very aware that in our personal lives and even regionally, there are spirits of darkness, principalities, powers that are assigned to areas. So within personal families, when we, you know, we've, we often use the, the concept of a generational curse. That is a spirit assigned to the family lineage. And in regions, you will see territorial spirits, much like these, who felt assigned to this region and were begging not to be sent. They knew they couldn't stand up against the authority, but they made a begging of, please don't send me out. So what we see is Jesus, who at the time was not acknowledging the spirit, but he was acknowledging the man's need to be free. And in between him and the man was this obstruction of these devils who could not stay. They automatically yielded to the authority and the truth that was standing before them. And in so doing... They requested, hey, can we be cast in the pigs? Let's read on. So he says this, and shouting with a loud voice, he says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And of course, that's the implication of, your scholars will say that a Roman legion was approximately 6,000 soldiers. We don't know exactly how many that represented, but I think we can safely say that there were thousands of evil spirits present in this man which is obviously a lot. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them 
out of the country. Verse 11, now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. The demons implored him saying, just send us into the pigs. Send us into the swine so we may enter them because they knew if they were cast out and have a place to go, they'd have to return to the abyss. So these demons wanted to remain in their territory. So we need to understand that in your city and in your region and in your families, there are spirits assigned to try to take up residence within that which belongs to Jesus. But they have no right to be there. They will squirm. They will squeal. They will do everything they can to grasp and hang on. But they have no capacity to withstand the authority of truth. So our job is to uproot them and cast them out. They think they have the right to be somewhere because they've been there a long time, but they don't. Because you just as much belong to the Lord today as the moment in eternity when he saw you from the cross and put you into right relationship with him before you ever made that decision. So you've always belonged to him, and your city belongs to him. And so it's our job as reconcilers of peace to understand and to uproot the forces of darkness that would try to take up residence in your city and in your families. Because they have no right to be there. So demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Verse 13. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So we know the story. We know the pigs run off the hill. They drown in the water. What's interesting to think about is as soon as, as soon as these spirits were sent into these pigs, they immediately killed themselves. Why? Because an animal has no capacity. There's no spirit in an animal. So it has no capacity to withstand the forces that were imposed upon it. Yet we see a man that for some undescribed length of time had managed to keep himself alive yet being possessed by thousands of devils. So it shows the strength of the human spirit to withstand the forces of darkness. Because this is a clear example of that. Because immediately when they came to the pigs, the pigs drowned themselves. They couldn't withstand it. So verse 14, their herdsmen ran away, reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. In verse 15, and this is going to be the scripture we're going to key in on. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been, been, past tense, demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. Sitting down, clothed, and in his right right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. So that's what scared them as the guy said in order. All this craziness had been going on. This man that had been tormenting the the Decapolis, which was a group of ten cities, and they freak out when he's better, right? Kind of, seems kind of ridiculous. Let's read on. Verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Verse 17. And they began to implore him, who? Jesus, to leave their region. See, it was too much for them. They were frightened by the restoration that occurred within this man. And so their immediate response is fearful, saying, we don't understand this, so we reject it. So they took the very source of life and authority and pushed him back to the boat. We often describe the story how Jesus came across the water to reach out to this man. But I imagine had they invited him into the city, that he would have been able to directly minister and teach and do much more than reach that one man. But the beauty of the story is Jesus still accomplished his purpose through the individual because of what happens next, right? So verse 18 is that he's getting into the boat, and of course, if your life had just been turned around, Wouldn't you want to be with the guy that did that? He says, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring Jesus that he might accompany him. Of course. He says, you've just changed my life in every measure. You've just done what no man can do. You've just saved me from everything that is destroying my life. Of course I want to be with you. And Jesus, not because he was being unkind, says, you can't come with me. 
Now, most of the time we think of the delicate, kind Jesus that anytime you ask him for anything, he allows it. But then we see these strict moments in the Gospels where he definitively tells people no way. And so to this guy, he literally has got like a hand in his face saying, you're not getting in the boat. I need you to stay. But why? Because something crucial happened after that. So he did not let him, and he said to him, this is verse 19, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And verse 20 says, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Now think about that. As amazing of a story it is, because as we see, and we'll see in Luke's, um, um, in Luke's description of the same sequence of events, that there was a group of 10 cities, the Decapolis that this man was from. And it says he went throughout the cities proclaiming Jesus. So the very place that Jesus was not allowed into, this man went back and testified and became the entryway for them to receive. Because there's no way that you can tell me that these people were marveled and that they didn't believe. Because they saw a person they knew transformed. And that was the evidence of the test. The testimony was the power. So Jesus didn't have to come into the land because the transformation that happened came through a person who had touched him. Now we need to understand that that is the imperative nature of the places that we are assigned to in life. Because, listen, there is no possible way in the span of eternity, who knows when this thing is going to wrap up, but what I can say about it is we are definitely coming into the last of the last days. And it is increasingly important to keep our eyes focused on the harvest because every ear needs to hear the gospel message. But Jesus always has, we see it there, and always will use people to accomplish his purpose. And so our assignments in life, our occupations, our families, our influences, our friends, are crucial connections for people to come to Jesus because there are so many people that will never darken the door of a church because they've heard crazy things about it. They've heard about those crazy Christians. There's no, like, no way ever that I'm ever going to go into that place because they have been either hurt by religion, misinformed, misunderstand, not sure what's going on, and yet you take a man they knew. They knew him one way, then they saw him in another. And they couldn't help but believe because they knew that guy. They had heard about the crazy Christians. They maybe even heard about this crazy Jesus that scared them so much because of all the things that happened that they pushed him away. But when they saw the man that they knew had been in a bad way, corrected and fully restored and aligned and in his right mind, they could not help but believe the evidence. And what I'm saying to you is when they see the evidence of Jesus in your life, when they see the changed way that you walk, they may never step into this church, but they can come to know the Lord because they know you, because you're not crazy to them, because every day you have conversations with them. They know you're not out of your mind. They understand that you're a level-headed person. They may think religion's crazy, but then they go, but I know this person. They're a friend of mine. They're an acquaintance. We have lunch together. We've worked together. We hang out together. We go places together. And that is an evidence of a testimony that can draw people to Jesus. That is why it is so crucial that we are an expression of Christ through the beauty of how he has made us as individuals. Because we always talk about how, you know, Pastor Jonathan will step here and say, there's people you can reach I can't reach. He's not just saying that. It is for this reason. You see Jesus using this guy as a missionary to a group of cities that would not allow him in, but he still accomplished the purpose. And each one of us, in the same way, is a representation of this. So let's flip over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, and just make a couple parallels. We're not going to read through the whole thing. So this is Luke, chapter 8. So in history, 
Um, in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was generally thought that the book of Matthew was the first gospel that was transcribed. But as it moved from the 18th into the 19th century, it became a much more popular theory, which has good evidence of the Mark and priority of the gospels, meaning that they believe that Mark was written first. And most people think that Mark was John Mark, who was the person who actually traveled with Paul. And they think that probably his most direct source and influence upon the writing of the book of Mark was actually him and his conversations with Peter. So it's traditionally believed that Peter was, if not the sole source, one of the major sources for the book of Mark. And a lot of people believe that Matthew and Luke came, dispensed from that, um, had, a, had a lot of influence based on, on the uh, Mark being written as the first gospel. So in Luke chapter 8, we see the same story told, obviously from Luke's perspective and his, um, not his perspective, but his uh, influence and in those that he had come to record and learn of these events to transcribe it. So we see, starting in verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Verse 27, when he came out onto the land, and that's Jesus, it's capital H, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. What is it about our pursuits in life that when self-focused get so into our human nature, that we stop doing the things that are normal. If people develop a passion, let's say it this way. Let's take, for instance, for lack of a better reference, a person that begins to come under the influence of drugs. Now, if you've ever known anyone's story, it generally does not stop with what I'd call low-level narcotic or low-level influence. So people usually escalate from one to the other generally because the euphoria that they feel becomes something that they so desire constantly that they'll do anything to acquire it. And all of a sudden they find themselves leaving almost, the far extreme of this is people almost become animalistic in their pursuits and doing things that they could have never looked themselves in the mirror and admitted that they would do in order to acquire the sensation that they were trying to get. We don't just see that in someone that, for instance, is dealing with a bad drug habit. We see it in every measure of life when we take our passions that are not connected to God and the enemy has a way of pushing us into vices that consume our attention. And we become very focused on attaining feel-good things in life to the degree that if we don't watch ourselves, become things that move us away from every piece of normalization that we are as humans. So what we see in this aspect is a person who was taken to such an extreme because of the influences in his life that he wasn't even able to do normal things like keep his clothes on and live in a house anymore. So now you have a man who is naked, breaking bonds and chains, living out in these mountains because the extreme nature of the curse was enacted in his life. But what Jesus does in a moment is restore an individual and make him, a mission to, make him a missionary simultaneously. So what is required was a miracle of soul, spirit, and body that occurred in this man in a moment. And in that point, not only restored him, brought him into alignment, but instantaneously gave him a mission and an assignment all in one touch. So Jesus has the capacity to do in a moment, which is what a miracle is, when it really comes down to it, often a miracle in itself is something that could have happened over a long span of time, but is done immediately. So we see process of healing. I, as a physician, understand that the process of healing, especially post-surgery, takes some time. 
But what you see happen in this moment is a person that needs to be healed in their mind, healed in their body, healed in their spirit. Something that, should take, that would take years of therapy and years of training and years of psychological discussion is healed by God in a moment. And that's a miracle of time. It's a miracle of process. And that's what he did within this man. So don't ever think that where you come from or what has happened in your life disqualifies you in any measure. Because when it really comes down to it, all we're doing is choosing to step in and believe the source of life in what he says about us. It's that infinity mirror that Pastor Jonathan was referring to. When we can see Jesus looking back at us and seeing what he sees about us, then we can truly transform into the individual that says, yes, I can walk on water. Yes, I can overcome these mountains. Yes, I can accomplish these dreams. Because it was never in our capacity to do so. It was the ability to see. And this gentleman, when touched by God, had the oppression lifted off of him, and then he had the ability to see. And when people came out and found him, they found him sitting. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's look. Same, we're in Luke. Verse 35, the people went out to see what happened. This is Luke 8, 35. And look how literally word for word that this scripture is in parallel to Mark chapter 5. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. And a couple of verses down, it says, gripped with great fear. It is almost a word for word translation comparison to the other gospel that very rarely happens between the four gospels and i often think that when words are that literally translated where they come together in such a sequence that they're so consistent about the details that there's an emphatic point to be understood so that man had a miracle of restoration because he was seated everybody say seated clothed everybody say clothed and in his right mind say right mind so this comparison is a healing within his spirit, his mind, and his body. So if I had to title this message today for those of you that like titles to write on the top of your notepapers, it would be Seated, Clothed, and Balanced. So this individual in this experience and in this moment tapped into something that now, generations later, not only are we still teaching about but shows it is a microcosm of the fullness of the kingdom of God, of what our relationship with Jesus establishes in our hearts. Because he was seated with Jesus. How many know that when you step from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that you are seated with Jesus on high? He is clothed now. Why? Because it's normal to be clothed. Because now the clothing that he wears is the righteousness and the right standing that he has. So he is seated next to Jesus. He is clothed in the right standing with God because he sits there next with him. And the next thing says he was in his right mind. He was balanced. So I'm going to dig into a little bit of science this morning because I want to just connect this to an analogy to help maybe drive this point home for you guys a little bit. Because many of the things that I've learned over the years, God will speak to me through the natural things that I see in the world. Because I believe there very often is a natural parallel to spiritual things because God made the heavens and the earth. So much that we look at in the human body and in nature reflects the kingdom of God and can teach us about ourselves and how we should live. So there are three components that every human needs in order to balance in life. And I don't mean balances in like your life and emotions. I mean balances and be able to walk on the ground and stay upright and not fall over. There's three components to that that are critically important. 
And one of those components, and I'll break this down. I don't want to get too sciencey on you guys, but I think that this will, this will really help drive home my points. One of these critical components is the idea of something called propios, proprioception. And what that means is, is the ability to know one's position in space. Another critical component is something called the vestibular system. It's our inner ear. It's the labyrinth of the cochlea and the semicircular canals within our inner ear that keep us balanced and upright. And so that's the capacity for our head to know its position in space. So we have proprioception, which helps us know where we are in, where we are in space, meaning that when we close our eyes, you don't have to tell me when you're holding out your hand, you, don't, you have a, a natural sense with your eyes closed of where your hand is in space. So if a person had a dysfunction in that system of their neurologic tract, they would have an incapacity to know when they held their arm out where their arm actually was with their eyes closed. So it takes that component, which is attracted in the spinal cord that I'll get into in just a second, just to break it down enough to make the point. The vestibular system, the inner ear, and the third component is vision. Because if you can't see, it's hard to know that you're walking upright on the ground. So all three of those components, components are critical for balance in life. Because if you take any one of the three together, you might be able to manage, but if you remove two of the three, you cannot stand up straight. And for the sake of analogy, and we'll get to a minute, I'm going to have a couple of object lessons. So I'm going to need someone to help me out. I may enlist Pastor Jonathan if he's so willing. Yeah. All right, cool. So just to move on these topics, we're going to start. As I said, we're talking about seated, clothed, and balanced. All right? Okay. So in our physical bodies, there's an integrated overlapping between these multiple systems within our nervous tract to create a capacity to balance in life. So proprioception, what did I say? That's the ability to know one's position in space. There are several tracks that run through the spinal cord. It's very sciencey. It's a lot of neuroscience. It's really interesting stuff to me. It'd be very boring for you. But there is a column within our spinal cord called the dorsal column medial lemniscus. lemniscus. And really all that is is basically a way that so us doctors can remember where the tracks go so that we know what we're talking about and a lot so for those that aren't neuroscientists that we can basically answer the questions on the test right. Anyway, all that being said, it's an intricate system, it's a marvelous system, and the nervous tract is an amazing system. But within the tracts of our spinal cord, on the posterior portion, that means the back portion, the part that's closer to the, the back of your back, there is an intricate, there's an integrated network of fibers that runs through that tract that dispenses itself down our spinal cord and through our peripheral nerves to give us that proprioception. So that specific tract within our spinal cord helps us have the fine motor skills that we have, and in particular, it develops what we call our integrative touch, our discriminative touch, which is our, 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 our sense of fine, mo our fine motor sense, our fine touch sense. The ability to know where we are in space, to sense vibrations comes in that tract. When you feel something vibrate, when you put your hand on it, that comes from that tract within the spinal cord. And this idea of knowing where you are in space, proprioception. So that is critically important. You may think it's a small thing, but without it, you couldn't stand up straight. And it's not even something that you even think about. You do it all the time. Now, when you compare something called discriminative touch within that tract, it's very different on different parts of the body. On your fingertips are extremely and intricately sensitive to fine points of pressure. But if I was to do, if I was to prick you on the finger, you could tell me exactly within a millimeter the location that I was in. But if I was to do the same thing at some region on your back, though you could tell me the general area, you could not pinpoint it to that degree because the tract is set up differently in the points where it is important, which is why, and obviously, how much do we use our hands? How integrated are our hands into our life and how it's important that we have that sense of fine touch? So that's something that God created for us to give us the capacity to do the things that we do. In that same, um, in that same aspect of things, 
there is this idea of something called stereognosis. And what that is, is it's the ability to identify an object without any audio or visual input. Case study. Pastor Jonathan, will you help me out? Will you stand up here for me? I'm going to do something very simple. Will you close your eyes for me and hold out your hands? Don't worry, I won't put anything weird. Just one hand. Just one hand up. I'm going to put something in your hand, okay? Now, don't open your eyes. Don't cheat. I need you to tell me what this object is, but I don't want you to look at it, okay? It makes no sounds. Don't say what it is. Everybody kind of see it? All right. Now, I'm going to put this in Pastor Jonathan's hand. He's going to tell me what it is. It may take him a minute, but we'll see if he, uh, this was not pre-planned, so hopefully he'll get it right. There we go. He knew it instantly. How long did that take? You can open your eyes now. So, maybe a second, yeah. So that's stereognosis. It's the capacity to be able to identify an object without any audio or visual input. And that is an intricate part of our nervous system, which linked into the striking sit down. I'm going to use it again in just a minute, if that's all right, as we do another object lesson. My point in saying that is God has a way within us that he has naturally designed to accomplish who we are supposed to be. But at any point, if there's an impairment in any measure of that, if there's a fragmentation within ourselves, then the sense of balance that he has naturally created for our life will come out of order. Which is why you see when someone puts their focus and intensity on something that's not of God and begins to develop and invest themselves in that, that their life gets out of balance or out of order. Now, there's another tract that runs through the spinal cord called the spinothalamic tract. It's a different one. And why this, was, why this one is important is because it senses pain and temperature. Now, in our society... We don't like pain at all. In fact, we're very averse to it. So much so that the majority of complaints that I get when patients come to visit me have to do with pain. Generally, the dysfunction isn't even necessarily something large, but the fact that they sense pain is what gets, seems to get people most often into a doctor's office. We have a severe aversion and fear of pain because we want to avoid it. The challenge with that is, Sometimes pain is an important aspect in our lives of an indication that something more is going on. If we were simply to mask pain and to take it away, there are many things within the natural human body that would decay or create deleterious effects because they don't have a sense of pain triggering, triggering an understanding that it's an indicator of an underlying problem. Case in point. A severe diabetic that's uncontrolled, that doesn't control their blood sugar well, will develop problems with their micro nerves in their feet. They will lose sensation in the small nerves to such a degree that they'll come to the point where there's so much numbness on the bottom of their feet that they could literally have a toy or a rock or an object in their shoe and they can't sense it. So imagine walking around on, I don't know, a toy car made of metal all day long on the bottom of your foot and not being able to feel it. Before you know it, They've broken, they, they break it down, they create a, a gap in the skin, a hole that can convert into an ulcer that can get infected. And ultimately, people can eventually even get amputations from things like this because they don't have the natural pain response to say, hey, something's down there. There's not a sensation that's created. So sometimes we run away from pain because we're concerned that it's got to be wrong because it hurts. When actually, the pain is not only an indicator that there might be something there that's going on that you need to dig into deeper, or it may be something that is in the process of teaching you how to get into a place that you need to be. I'm not saying that pain is always a good thing, but I'm also saying pain is not always a bad thing. And just because you feel pain, it's not, I must run from this because it hurts. 
Because there are many things in life that are quote-unquote not comfortable that our natural inclination would be to gravitate away from because all we're really trying to do is to get into a comfortable place. And yet, that may be a very thing that the Lord is pricking us with in our life to stimulate us to move into a right place for our lives. And because we refuse to stay in the uncomfortable place to develop our capacity to understand what it was that we're supposed to step and grow into, then we move back to a place of safety. And in that place of safety, we never are prodded or pricked or pushed into the very things that God may be designed for our life. Because when it really comes down to it, some of the most intricate dreams within your heart are not going to be accomplished in comfortable moments. They're going to be accomplished in very uncomfortable moments. And if you shrink back because of fear of pain, because of fear of discomfort, because of fear of concerns about what may happen, then you will absolutely limit your potential to be who God has called you to be in this time and in this age. So let's talk about the vestibular system. So that's the inner ear. So we have these little, for lack of a, a, a better description, we have these small little stones or crystals, if you will. It sounds weird to say we have crystal, little crystals inside our head. But these very small stones that are within our inner portion of our ear. And as crazy as it sounds, the orientation of those little bitty stones in our head are what help us know when our head is upright. Anybody ever heard of someone that had vertigo? Vertigo is when all the stones in your head are all mixed up. They're in the wrong places. They've changed their, they're in the wrong positions. And the ironic thing about that is literally a person with vertigo may think up is down and down is up, and it is very inconvenient for them. And one of the old school methods, and they still probably often do this. I don't know if Dr. Deploy does this, but there, there are physicians that still do this. It is a procedure they call the Dix Hallpike Maneuver. And that doesn't matter for you. But all it means is that a doctor takes a person and positions them a certain way, rotates their head, rotates their body, in order to get those small stones in their inner ear back into alignment. Sometimes in the kingdom of God, we have to flip our perspective to get us oriented to what God wants us to see. So just in the same way that the doctor can take a maneuver that can correct the placement of those stones to bring, something, to bring a person out of vertigo into alignment, sometimes God has to flip our perspective to help us see the things in the kingdom that he wants us to see, which is a critical component to understanding that life is not just as you perceive because of your experience, that sometimes God is working on you to help remove some of the experience being your teacher to unlock some things he wants to show you, but you're so bound by religion, you're bound by family tradition, you're bound by this is the way it's always been, or this is where I grew up, or this is my education, that you can't see what he's trying to see. And sometimes he's got to flip you in your perspective in order to get you seeing the perspective that you need to see to where you need to go. And the third thing that we're talking about in a component for balance is vision. Vision. What does the Bible say? It says, uh, people perish for a lack of knowledge, for a lack of vision. Without vision, people perish. Why? Because we have to see ourselves in relation to something to get there. So, Pastor Jonathan, if I can use you for another object lesson. Do you mind coming up on the stage? So, this is a test. Now, I haven't done this in a while. They taught me this in medical school. This is a test that they do when a person comes in and they're having balance issues. This is one of the initial exams that are done in the process of an of a exam of the nervous system. So this is called the Romberg test. I'm going to ask you to do something real simple for you, John. It's not real hard. Put your feet together. All right. I'm going to ask you to hold your hands out, kind of like straight like that. Now close your eyes. And you just watch a person for a while. Because you see him swaying? So he's auto-correcting right now. Now, Jonathan is a good, healthy, strapping young man, so he's not going to fall over. But if there's a person with balance issues, you literally have to stand behind them to make sure that they don't tip over in your clinic room. Because like I said, we've removed, one, we've taken away what? His vision. He can't see. So he naturally is not oriented as much as he was before his eyes were open. You do this all the time when you're in worship. You close your eyes, but you sway. 
You sway when you close your eyes because otherwise you're going to fall over because you're auto-correcting. Okay, thank you for the sake of analogy. Thank you. Give me a hand. Good job. So that's a simple test called the Romberg test that basically just tests the, ner- the nervous system. Now, if a person not healthy like Jonathan has a problem with balance, you take away the vision component and they're relying on two mechanisms in which to keep their balance. We've just extracted one. So if there's a problem in one of the other two, that's the first initial exam to say, all right, there's an issue here. We have to look further. Because that person literally, and I've seen them, will top over into the wall if you don't watch them. So... You can't immediately from that establish if it's a problem with the proprioception, the position in space, or if it's an inner ear issue, but you know there's a problem you have to investigate further. So we can manage along with one of those things out of alignment for a while. But if we take a second hit, there is no propensity for us as an individual to be able to stand in life. And the challenge with that is, is there are a lot of people that are walking around functioning off of one of these three systems. There are many Christians that have a broken perspective or understanding of who they are because they may be majoring on one of these things, but they're minoring on the others or they're completely absent in their life. So what we see with this individual that was possessed with thousands of devils, he was instantaneously seated, clothed, and balanced. What is seated? Proprioception. Your position in space. You are seated with Christ. Number two, clothed, vision. You are clothed in righteousness, in the right standing with God. Your vision is that you are clothed and in right standing because he said that you were. And what's the third thing? In his right mind, balance. The ability to be disciplined and accomplish life's goals set in you by the kingdom because you're in your balanced state of mind. All those things were critical components. And then you see that when Jesus did that in that man, then he was sent on the mission. Then he could be used. But it was a miracle that was done in a moment. But all components were critically important. Now, I believe in the sound of my voice that there are people that in various places in their life are fragmented. Now, this would come from experiences that you've had, from trauma that you've gone through as a child, from situational disturbances within your family. There are fragmentations in our life, but God is a unifier of fragmented lives. He took this individual that was literally so fragmented, separated within himself, seemingly lost. He had been discarded into the mountains to be left to die. He took that fragmented individual and fully restored him and set him in a mission in a moment. If he can do that with that man, then he can most certainly do that with our lives. Because we are seated with Christ. Because we are clothed in righteousness. Because it is his righteousness that came upon us when we accepted him into our heart. And we are in our balanced right mind. Because he brings all things into order and into alignment. Today, I believe that the Lord wants to unify some people within the sound of my voice. That have experienced fragmentation in maybe any multiple versions of these areas. And maybe I'm talking to people that might say, you know, I haven't had a whole lot of vision for my life. That maybe my vision needs to be restored. Or maybe you feel unbalanced. 
Maybe you feel undisciplined. Maybe in your pursuits, you're trying to get it together, but you're like, I just haven't had the focus that I need to have for my life. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just haven't been doing a good job of getting it done. Or maybe you don't know your sense of position in Christ. And you're lacking in understanding that there's a misalignment there. That when you come to know the Lord, you are seated with him. When you look in that infinity mirror and you see Jesus looking back at you, the, reverberate, the reverberating light between the two of you is an increasing exponential knowledge that occurs. Pastor Jonathan and I were talking about this coming home last night, about how if we in our endeavors can just sometimes crack the door. You know, we talk about but sometimes where you take a group of youth that in a two days time, in a 48, not even a three day period, in a 48 hour window, move from stone face to jumping and celebrating, jumping up to the ceiling, it just totally just almost just like literally physically fatigued for their expression of worship to Jesus. That's a miracle. Because what happened in those two days was nothing that we did. Yeah, we encouraged them in the word of God, but it was the Holy Spirit that took effect in their life. All we do is try to attempt to crack a door, to open a door and say, if you can look in that room and see what's in that room, I promise it will have your gaze for the rest of your life. And then the process of life is, after seeing the crack in the door, gazing into the room, then doing everything we can in our efforts to learn how to walk through that door into that room and experience the fullness of what's in there. That's our journey as a Christian. Because once we get into that room, everything else, just details. Once you get into that room, everything else about your life is details. Everything that happens to you, every challenge that you have in your life, every storm that comes, just details. When Tia was up here singing, I got this image, and I've never seen this before. It was the coolest thing. When they were singing about, we, often, we, we sing in songs, there's an expression about being in the depths of God. We describe that as oceans or being out in the depths. But what I saw is something I've never seen before. Because I guess I've always thought of like, we're just out in deep water swimming. But what I saw that was different than how I guess I normally take that analogy into place was us standing on deep waters. Just like Jesus out walking on the water that night on the ocean in the storm. That in the midst of great circumstances, you are out in deep places. That there is great depth around you. Not just, and I don't mean storms by bad circumstances. I mean the great depths of the kingdom of God that is so much more vast and farther beyond our natural understanding. But because of our seated place, our position in Christ, we can stand out there on deep waters. And we were literally jumping and celebrating, running as if it was a frozen lake, but it wasn't. Because we could see through the waters transparently, could see the great fish swimming under us, and we were out there standing and celebrating God on deep waters because that is the place where he lives. And yes, in your own strength, you're like this little speck out there in the mighty waters. But understanding that though those waters are not, we've, often, we've used this with the, with the youth several times over the last couple of days, though the waters were not safe, they are good. And so out there we dance and celebrate. That is the place that God takes us to. And when you get out in that place, everything else it's just details. The situational circumstances of your life, they pale in comparison. Because in that infinity mirror, in that reverberating light, you increasingly see yourself more and more as Jesus sees you. And when you capture that, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. Because you overcome because of your seated, righteous, balanced position. What's something in mind coming to play for me a little bit? I'm just going to ask you guys to bow your heads if you will.